0: Hello and welcome to the Moneymaker's Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organization, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week has been another relatively quiet one for the investment trust sector, although not without its share of interesting news items, including annual results from the widely followed Bailey Gifford Trust Scottish Mortgage, a proposed merger between two Japanese investment trusts, and the rare sight, in recent months at least, of a proposed placing in the renewable energy sector. Later, I discuss the situation of Scottish Mortgage, the renewables, and other alternative asset sectors with Matt Hose, alternatives analyst at the Broker Jeffries. Meanwhile, I was lucky enough to spend a couple of hours this week at an event held at the Bank of England Museum, which featured a fascinating presentation on some of the lessons that investors can learn from the experience of investment trusts through history. Uh, And of course, they have a long one going back into the second half of the 19th century. I'll be featuring one of the speakers at the event in the podcast in the next week or two. And if you haven't been to the Bank of England Museum in the heart of the city, I can recommend it. It's uh, got a lot of interesting exhibits about the way that the bank operates and the history of money in this country. I should also add that there will be a couple of weeks coming up in which, uh, like this one, the podcast will come out as usual, but will be a little shorter than normal as I'm going to be away on holiday for that period. Beyond that, as will become clear, I hope to be I'm uh, looking to add one or two extra features to the podcast, including possibly uh, inviting listeners to submit questions about specific aspects of investment trusts and looking with expert help where necessary to answer a small selection of them, either in the podcast or in the Moneymakers Circle, our online sister subscription publication. Do feel free to email me to let me know if you think that this might be something of interest. What then of the markets this week? Potential worst-case US debt default remains an issue that's been hanging over the markets for a while now, with the federal debt ceiling that has to be agreed between the government and Congress at imminent risk of being breached. According to the Treasury's Secretary, Janet Yellen, the federal government will run out of money on June the 1st. We've had brinksmanship run-ins of this sort before, mind you, back in 2011 and 2013, for example, as a result of which US government debt lost its premium AAA rating. Last minute talks to avert a crisis between uh, President Biden and congressional leaders, and no doubt some inevitable horse trading going on there, took place this week, but uh, so far have made little progress, according to newspaper reports. The assumption in the markets appears to be that the issue will be resolved, if only at the last minute, as it usually is, uh, without a potentially costly government shutdown. Uh, but this is Washington, and there's no love loss between Democrats and Republicans with an election coming up next year. So you can never absolutely say never. A failure to agree, although not necessarily an immediate disaster, there are things that the Fed and the government can do to ameliorate the uh, impact of a failure to agree, would certainly add, though, to the problems on the Federal Reserve's plate. There's already talk that they may have to increase interest rates again, despite the the markets hope and indeed expectation that they would have reached the top of the rate hiking cycle with their last meeting. Anyway, that may be one reason why we saw bond yields move higher this week, with yields rising by around 10 basis points at both ends of the maturity spectrum and gilt yields up around the same. The tenure now a tad under 4%. The dollar firmed a little, however, and the pound retreated after its recent strong run. Commodities being mostly dollar denominated edged down again and the gold price is back below two thousand dollars an ounce, though in other currencies it remains pretty buoyant. Equity markets were again mixed with the standout performers being the Japan market and Nasdaq. Japan, definitely a market to watch, as I've noted here a couple of times before, and other markets marginally ahead, including the US and UK indices with a notable exception of China and Hong Kong, both down around 1% on the week. It's notable that both the US and European indices have been driven higher by just a handful of big growth companies on high P.E. ratios. The big seven tech and consumer companies in the US accounting for all the gain of the S&P 500 index this year. While in Europe, the picture is similar with the big seven European luxury stocks, that is uh, LVMH, L'Oreal, Hermes, Christian Dior, Richemont, Kering and Ferrari are up 25% this year, where they trade on three times the 12 times P of the average stock in the Stock 600 index. The modest but encouraging year-to-date gains in world equity markets, therefore, have been quite narrowly based. The investment trust index was little changed on the week and the average discount remains just over 15%. One broker that I talked to this week said that in the current climate of uncertainty, there's still little demand in evidence for investment trust shares, with offers outnumbering bids by four to one on average. There were notable gains, though, by Aberdeen European Logistics Income, ticker ASLI, and Aberdeen Japan, ticker AJIT, both up more than 10% on the week, the latter reacting to the news of a proposed merger with the Nippon Active Value Fund. The activist funds whose manager... Paul Folkes-Davis, was on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago. This looks like a deal that satisfies both sets of shareholders, judging by the share price reaction, with Aberdeen Japan up 12% and NAVF up just over 3%. Uh, shareholders in the Aberdeen Trust can tender up to 25% of their shares at NAV minus 2%, while existing and uh, shareholders who remain from the Aberdeen Trust will benefit from Nippon Active Value taking its market capitalization up above the £200 million mark, which should make it a more palatable offering for wealth managers and other institutions for whom size and liquidity are increasingly important considerations. Nippon Active Value, by the way, is the best performing Japanese trust since its launch in 2018. This latest deal seems to suggest that Aberdeen, which has more than a dozen investment trusts, not all of them of critical mass size, Are taking an active approach to rationalising their investment trust portfolio. Its Japan Trust has been trading at a discount of more than 10% for some time, and with a continuation vote looming, the decision to liquidate and merge follows a strategic review by the board. Shareholders representing 30% of the shares in Aberdeen, Japan have indicated support for the proposal, so presumably this will go through fairly easily. The merger is expected to be implemented in the third quarter of this year, and Nippon Active Values investment policy will be amended subject to shareholder approval to allow a greater number of portfolio investments and more flexibility in relation to size of its shareholdings in investee companies. So good news for that particular trust. Elsewhere, the other perhaps most significant bit of news this week was the announcement that Gresham House Energy Storage, ticker GRID, G-R-I-D, is looking to raise £80 million, around 10% of its current market capitalisation, through a placing at 155.5p, a very slight premium to its uh, recent share price. The money will be used to finance its first investments in the US, two solar projects in California. Gresham House Energy Storage has the distinction of being the only renewable energy trust which is still currently trading at a premium, uh, and the only one, therefore, that can currently attempt a placing of this sort. Of the three trusts in the battery storage area, that's uh, Gore Street Energy Storage and Harmony Energy Income being the others, it has the best share price performance over one, three, and five years, and has only once since its IPO traded at a discount, which was during the immediate aftermath of the pandemic. The other two trade on a discount of around 9%, but offer higher yields, uh, nearer 7% compared to Grid's 4.6%. Uh, The share prices of all three are down modestly this year, so brokers say this will be a good test of the market's willingness to support secondary funding by renewable trusts in this higher bond yield environment that we've been in for a a while now. A footnote also this week to the conversation we had with the managers of International Biotechnology Trust – on Monday, it was disclosed that the Federal Trade Commission is unexpectedly, at least the market seems to be taken by surprise, seeking to block Amgen's acquisition of Horizon Therapeutics, which you may recall was the trust's biggest holding. This tougher approach by the FTC is based on the view, apparently, that too much consolidation in this sector will stifle innovation and lead to higher drug prices, a regulation as always being a key factor in the healthcare and biotech area. Horizon Therapeutic shares were down 19% on the news, given the uh, potential blocking of the takeover, Uh, although the managers of uh, International Biotechnology Trust had already, prudently as it turns out, sold their shares into the market, so have managed to avoid that markdown. Well done to them. As always, a full list of results and other investment trust announcements can be found on the Moneymakers website, together with our weekly summary of the biggest price and discount movements across the sector. Subscribers can this week read a profile of JP Morgan America, ticker J A M, which will be followed next week by Aberdeen Property Income. We also have a guest column about private equity from the financial historian Edward Chancellor, author of that excellent new book just out called The Price of Time, which chronicles how policies of keeping interest rates suppressed can have a whole series of negative medium and longer term consequences. That might be a relevance to where we are in the market cycle at the moment. Topping the annual results table this week was Scottish Mortgage, the Bailey Gifford Trust. As we know, 2022 was a year to forget for this trust. An NAV total return of minus 17.8% and a share price total return of minus 33.6%. In a period when the All World Index, its benchmark, was down just 0.9%. The private company element of the portfolio has been marked down aggressively. More aggressively, it has to be said, than we've seen at some other private equity trusts, and now stands at 28% of the total, just shy of the board-sanctioned 30% limit. More on the events at uh, Scottish Mortgage in a moment. Elsewhere, we heard from North American smaller companies, ticker NAS, that's Christopher Mills' uh, vehicle, which reported uh, NAV down 1.2% over the year to the 31st of January. And uh, J P Morgan Multi-Asset Growth and Income, ticker MATE, M-A-T-E, uh, which has a target of delivering a 6% annualised return over five years and sits in the flexible investment trust sector. But in its latest reporting year to the end of February, underperformed its benchmark by 11%. It was down around 5%, uh, but the benchmark was up about 6% and that was mainly due to losses on its bond portfolio. The dividend target, though, has been raised by 9% to 4.8p, which is equivalent to a prospective yield of just around 5%. Turning to the crop of interim results, among the better-known names I would highlight this week is Finsbury Growth and Income, ticker FGT, which reported an NAV total return of 12.3% over the six months to the end of March, bang in line with the Orsha Index, over the same period. The trust there has been buying back shares to defend its discount target of around 5%. Gearing at the end of the period was 1.5%, so relatively low. But Nick Train, the manager of the trust, said that he saw signs that outlook for the UK equity market was improving. Things really do seem to be gradually getting better, he said. Over at Lowland, meanwhile, that's another equity income trust, managed by Janice Henderson in this case. The benchmark is the same as for Finsbury Growth and Income. But in the case of this trust, the NAV total return was actually higher, 16.1%, outperforming the All Share Index over that six-month period. Lowland is an interesting vehicle that uh, can invest right across the UK capitalisation spectrum, uh, but has a bias towards mid- and small-cap shares. So this was a better period for the trust. But the board noted that uh, the company's longer term performance has been disappointing, particularly since the Brexit vote in 2016. The discount at which the shares trade has come in from over 11 percent to uh, just under 6 percent in the six month period. But the board said that in this case, after careful consideration of the issue, it continues to believe that a discount control mechanism is not in shareholders' interest. So an interesting difference in approach there. Very much a hot topic at the moment, whether or not boards should be doing more to control discounts. Aberdeen Equity Income also has the same benchmark as the other two trusts I just mentioned. Its performance over the six months to the end of March uh, was just 3.3% NEV total return. So underperforming by around 9% and underlining what a difference in approach there is between these various uh, equity income trusts. However, there, the discount has come in as well. There's an interesting trust here, which has done well over three years, but poorly over five. Then also worth mentioning Scottish Oriental Smaller Companies, ticker SST, uh, managed in Edinburgh where the NAV total return was positive 2.7% against a decline in its benchmark index of 3.8%. The board here noted that a performance fee of around £2 million is likely to fall due in August this year. But the performance fee mechanism uh, that this trust has is under review by the board. And it's interesting one here because the trust changed its benchmark in the middle of the three-year period over which the performance fee calculation is made. Finally, on the interims, I'd mention Tritax Eurobox, which reported interim results for the same six month period, at the end of March, and reported a big decline in its uh, EPRA net tangible asset per share of 23.9%, delivering a total return of over the same period at minus 22.1%. The decline was attributed to a more uncertain macroeconomic environment and, more importantly, I think, a rapid increase in interest rates. So this particular trust, like its sister trust, Tritax Big Box, uh, has been seen a, a significant re-rating and declining capital values following the sharp increase in interest rates that we observed in the second half of last year. The shares were down quite sharply on release of these interims. Mm-hmm. This week, as I mentioned, I was able to catch up with Matt Host, who is the alternative assets analyst at the broker, Jefferies. I kicked off by asking about a trust which is, not strictly speaking, a a pure alternative assets trust, but uh, has a significant exposure in unlisted equity. And that, of course, is Scottish Mortgage, ticker SMT. Now, SMT, uh, Scottish Mortgage, put out its uh, annual results this week. What was your initial take on that, uh, Matt?
1: Thanks, Jonathan. And uh, always uh, happy to be here as usual. So, for background, these results come after a, a bit of upheaval at the board, a number of board changes that have been announced, and obviously the resignation of one director. I think that the takeaway from the results is, though, that the management team are just basically sticking to knitting and, and focused on the job at hand, and that's continuing to sort of find and monitor attractive growth investments. And we've seen investment activity importantly both on the listed side of the portfolio but also on the unquoted side of the portfolio and why this person is management really have to do a a bit of a balancing act at the moment because they have a 30% limit on unquoted investments they've been above that limit recently which means they can't make any new unquoted investments and now they're back below that limit so that gives them a bit of flexibility to manage things going forward but really it's just focusing on the day job I think. And that, that was the message that came out of the results.
0: Yes, and I guess there's not much else they could do in that sense. It has been a difficult time for the Scottish Mortgage. The share price has been uh, pretty poor, as we know, and the NAV has uh, been coming down as well after the very strong year in the wake of the pandemic. How did Chairwoman Fiona McBain deal with the issue of the boardroom issues, which saw that uh, non-executive director, the American business professor Amar Bide, leave the board with a bit of a broadside at the other members of the mm-hmm. board? I was rather struck by that she hardly mentioned it, in fact.
1: Yeah, I think things have largely moved on from that. So prior to the announcement yesterday, they announced the appointment of the additional directors. Fiona had also announced she's sort of stepping down, but obviously that was part of the longer-term succession plans. And the reason, obviously, her departure was delayed was because of the um, to sort of manage the transition with uh, James Anderson leaving a couple of years back. So on that front, there was no new news.
0: We've seen this dramatic share price decline, and the share price is pretty much back to where it was three years ago now. What's your feeling about how the wider market is viewing Scottish Mortgage now, It's on a very big discount, 20% discount, which I don't think we've seen for a long, long time uh, in this particular case. Do you think that the sentiment issues continue to weigh on the share price, or do you think that things might stabilise
1: now? I think there's a 20 discount, as you say. Part of that discount, I think, is sentiment towards growth stocks. But I think a larger part of that discount is concerns over the valuations of the private companies, but the one thing that Scottish Morgan have done well and, and Bailey it more widely is they've shown good evidence that they've written down those unquoted holdings either in line with listed indices or even actually in excess of the listed indices. Because of the key stat from the results on Wednesday was that over the year to 31st of March, they'd written down by an average of 40% where they had to be write downs, there were some write ups against, say, I think it was a 14% decline in the NASDAQ. So I think that's still weighing on the share price because the risk that markets fall further and they have to write down things further. So I think that's pretty much where we're at.
0: What sort of read across is there, if any, from the way that the unlisted portion of the Scottish mortgage portfolio is uh, being valued uh, to other private equity trusts? Obviously, there's a quite wide
1: range of approaches that you see. There's not a lot of comparison because Scottish Mortgage have got VC venture capital positions and unlike some other funds, their venture capital positions are largely late stage. So pick three off the top of my head, ByteDance, Stripe and SpaceX are all very large businesses in the tens of billions enterprise value of businesses where capital markets recover. They could easily be the first IPOs out the gate. But that's very different to some of the other VC investments held across the space, and the buyout investments which make up the core of listed private equity sector.
0: That's right. We're going to talk about share buybacks in a moment. But uh, in terms of what they've been doing, they have obviously issued a huge number of shares uh, while the going was good, so to speak. But they've actually been more active than most in buying back now that it's moved to a discount. How do you think what they're doing compares to what's happening also across the rest of the uh, private equity sector? And why is it not having much effect, as far well as I can tell,
1: on the discount? I mean, for all these funds, balance sheet management is really key. I mean, with Scottish Mortgage, historically, they've issued a lot of stock, but also they bought back a lot of stock. And the one thing that slightly constrains them now is they have to manage both the gearing level of the fund and also that unquoted limit. Because if you're using cash or you're selling listed stocks to buy back, that will increase your proportion of unquoted stocks. So they have to be cognizant of that. With other listed private equity funds, they have off-balance sheet commitments. And they'll want to have enough cash to fund those commitments. So that's the main thing which limits their ability to buy back. But if we step back, the general point is, what do buybacks do? For me, you get a bit of navigation on a per-share basis, particularly if the discount is very wide. In technical terms, they eliminate a seller from the market, they create a buyer, and you know, they underscore the share price temporarily. But longer term, there's no real evidence that buybacks do anything for share price performance. And so we see it as a marginal positive of companies in the market buy back stock, but it doesn't really change much.
0: So what is a more effective way of eliminating the discount if you can? We see a number of different approaches. One point that's often made about private equity trusts is that they ought to be improving their disclosure, giving more details about what they own and so on. Some of them do it pretty well these days. And Scottish Mortgage is among those which actually does give a lot of information. Do you think that's going to be a, a factor that could help in reducing discounts?
1: Yeah, I think disclosure is one thing. I think that, you know, there has to be sort of a number of strings to the funds bows. there. Disclosure is one obvious one. But at the end of the day, I think discounts will be driven by performance, really. And I suppose the difficulty for Scottish Mortgage is, at the moment, performance is difficult because the market doesn't like growth stocks. But that will change. And I suppose what they're doing now is positioning the portfolio for better times and looking forward.
0: And I guess it's fair to make the point also that this has happened to Scottish Mortgage in the past, hasn't gone to such a big discount for a long, long time. But it's not that unusual. And in terms of the share price volatility, that's actually a feature of what you get under the policy that's been pursued since the James Anderson era.
1: That's it. And that's why the focus is firmly on the longer term. And so that short term writing sort of riding out that short term volatility um, and some good returns longer term, hopefully.
0: Yes, it was interesting to note, I think, that uh, James Anderson himself is returning to fund management as a partner in a new investment venture funded by the Agnelli family, the Italian card dynasty in a new venture, which is going to be chaired by George Osborne, the former chancellor. I don't suppose that he's going to be uh, changing his views about the way that money should be managed. I guess we should say that that's the big difference this year. We don't have James's views on uh, what's happened to Scottish mortgage this year, which uh, no doubt would be very forthright if he was still around. Let's just quickly then pick up on some other private equity uh, news this week. There's been a couple of updates that may be worth mentioning. One is HG Capital Trust which specialises more in the tech end of the uh, private equity spectrum. They reported some figures, an update, and uh, similarly we heard from Aberdeen Private Equity Opportunities, HarbourVest Global Private Equity, and uh, Pantheon International, all giving modest NAV updates In the latter case for the month just gone. Is
1: there a general story coming out of these updates? The general story is, if we look across Q4, it feels like a difficult time, but markets are actually positive across the quarter and also positive across Q1. And so these private equity funds report their NAVs on a sort of lag basis, but as they report, they're reporting, as you said, sort of modest increases, reflecting that modest strength in market. And that's what we're seeing coming through over recent days.
0: What are your thoughts on uh, HG Capital? Obviously, it's been a very, very strong long-term performer. I guess uh, being exposed to tech in the last 12 months or so has not been a good place to be. What are your thoughts on uh, HG Capital?
1: Yeah, I mean, we say tech, but really it's largely sort of software and enterprise software has been a fantastic place to be in over the last 10, 12 years. I mean, broadly, software business has gone from 10 times EV with our multiples to sort of 20, 25 times. And HGT has sort of ridden that re-rating and that's reflected in that, their excellent in that performance. Looking forward, I think the outlook has to be a bit more difficult Because are we going to see that sort of re-rating again? That's very unlikely. But what is driving the NAV is very strong earnings growth in underlying companies. And that has an element of uh, repeatability and predictability because that's the largest subscription revenues. So that should support some still strong performance in HD Capital. But also the environment is a bit more difficult with new deals at those higher valuations as well, and particularly debt multiples as well. A lot of these software companies have high debt multiples. And so you have to watch out for things like refinancing risk, et cetera.
0: And if we look at the listed private equity trust uh, sector, it's actually been the strongest performance sector of the year so far, at least if you take the average performance. But what's interesting about this uh, sector is the average is on a market cap-weighted basis, but uh, some of the bigger trusts have done exceptionally well, 3i, for example, And then we've had good performance from Oakley Capital and so on. But the broader fund of funds of private equity trusts, they still languish on very big discounts. So it's becoming quite differentiated, the sector, is it not?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, it's differentiated in terms of some of the recent performance, but also some of the assets in there as well. You've got lots of different underlying subsectors represented, lots of different size businesses as well inside the funds. The growth
0: capital sector also remains under a big cloud. The Shehalians and Chrysalis of this world among the worst performers so far this year. Do you think there's much hope of seeing a recovery there?
1: The key thing with those funds, I mean, Shahalian obviously is a Bailey Gifford vehicle, so they have the same valuation process as Scottish Mortgage because they have a lot of cross holdings for Scottish Mortgage. Again, the key thing there is they've been actually pretty aggressive in writing down the values, we think, from where markets are at the moment. Those values have got to a good base. But also the same with Chrysalis. Chrysalis has moved its portfolio away from being largely based on the last funding round, the last transactions, to a market multiple-based approach. And so the, the current portfolio valuation is on a lot, lot firmer ground than it was, say, 12, 18 months ago. So the last NAV we saw from Chrysalis was actually positive And that breaks, I think, four or five quarters of negative NAV performance. So it's difficult to call going forward because we don't know where markets are going to go forward. But the key message is that, that fund is on a lot more sort of firmer ground than before.
0: Let's move on then and talk about the renewable energy sector. We've had a number of updates from that sector so far this month. And this week, we have seen the first significant attempt at a fundraising, which is from uh, Gresham House Energy Storage. That's a Grid, G-R-I-D. We're looking to raise uh, $80 or so through a placing. If we look at the sector overall, what would be your summary of how that's moved over so far this year? We've seen power prices coming down uh, generally, but not much movement in the actual reported NAVs.
1: That's right. So if we look across the piece, reported NAVs have come down slightly, and that's a function of um, a decline in the forward power price curve. So if you looked at what those forward power prices were at 31st December and then you looked again at 31st of March, you would have seen a decline. So when those forward curves are put into the fund's valuation assumptions, the portfolio valuations have also declined. What's interesting is there's a bit of an offset to that because of the windfall tax, the electricity generators levy that came in at the end of last year. As the power price assumptions fall, the liability that windfall tax unwinds and that sort of buffers... The fall on the way down. means the the valuation reduction is less than it would be otherwise. But other than that, it's quite for this sector really. I mean, they're they're still offering good levels of cash dividend cover, good levels of inflation linkage going forwards. They're just questions about whether discount rates need to increase further.
0: The majority of the sector has moved to a discount. Many of them are premium for quite a long time. And uh, obviously, Gresham House, which is raising this money, is, is one of the exceptions. But that's the only one that's still uh, at a premium. What do you think the outlook is for discounts in this sector? Can you see a path to uh, some of these trusts getting back to trading at a premium?
1: The path to, to trade at a premium, in my view, is whether or not they can recycle capital. When we say recycle capital, that is sell existing operational projects and using that money to repay debt, potentially buy back stock at the margin, but mainly to reinvest it into higher return projects, either subsidy-free construction or projects in different geographies. One of the side effects from that process is you'll validate your current valuations and your current NAVs, and I think that's very helpful. So on that front, Next Energy Solar Fund have come out and said we're looking to sell a handful of assets and we'll recycle the capital. Other funds like Foresight Solo have also indicated they're going to try and do the same thing. But whether they can execute on that, I think that's a big driver of discounts at the end of the day.
0: Do you think there is a distinction to be had between those trusts which have portfolios pretty well funded and mature, and those which still have some balance sheet issues to sort out, they may have overcommitted and so on?
1: I don't think many are overextended, in particularly overcommitted. But the thing is, some of them have very big pipelines of investments they can acquire, and those pipelines often, even for solar funds actually, or those pipelines are in battery storage assets, and they're higher return assets. So if they're going to capture that opportunity, they need to sell some lower return operational kits. Otherwise, they're going to miss out, quite frankly. So that's why we want to see them recycle that capital. As it stands, there's no real sort of balance sheet worries in particular, There's not a huge amount of refinancing risk outside of their evolving credit facilities, but it still makes a lot of sense for them to recycle that capital.
0: Uh, One issue that's been around for the renewable energy sector for a while is this question of diversification and whether or not, for example, if you're a UK uh, solar fund, there's any advantage in uh, moving into, say, European solar projects, and that seems to be the general trend, similarly with uh, the wind trusts. Uh, And that's also a factor, obviously, with the, uh, the Gresham House raising that's going on. They want to expand into the US. Do you think that is a sensible course for the sector to take? And is that appreciated by investors? Do they want diversification?
1: I think diversification is always broadly sensible. But with these funds, you have to think about what are you actually getting from diversification? There is one narrative that by being in multiple geographies, say in Europe, then your production is more diversified. But in reality, there's one big weather system, say Northern Europe. And so if you're in Germany and and Finland, for example, you're not getting a huge amount of diversification there. Now, you do pick up more diversification if you're diversified by technology, because clearly when it's windy, it's not always sunny as well. Often... You know, it can be one or the other. So that can be helpful. But what diversification does give you, particularly across different geographies, is you're diversifying away subsidy risk and political risk. So if government decides to change their mind or impose often onerous um, restrictions or taxes on certain assets in certain geographies.
0: Last year, we saw that differential approach. Just to remind uh, listeners, perhaps, is there a material difference between the regime that the uh, UK government is applying to renewable energy and what the EU is doing?
1: Yeah, they're technically a bit different. I mean, EU's got a cap, while in the UK, we've got a tax above a certain level, basically. So you can still participate in higher power prices in the UK, whether in Europe you've got this sort of hard cap at a higher level.
0: What kind of impact does that have, though, in terms of bottom line impact? Can one actually compare those two directly?
1: I think it becomes about incentivization. So, you know, with the UK funds, with higher power prices, they still benefit from those higher power prices. It's just they're not taking the full benefit. They're losing some of it to the tax man.
0: I wanted to talk to you about the debt sector. We don't often talk about this particular sector. It's a very interesting time with bond yields having shot up over the course of the last 18 months or so. The sector has been contracting. A number of trusts have said they're going to be winding up or uh, will disappear. On the other hand, some of them do have floating rate exposure and therefore have some upside potential. Would you summarise for us what has been happening in this uh, sector overall, which tends to trade below the radar for most
1: uh, private investors at least? Yeah, that's a great summary in itself. A lot of these funds have debt investments with floating rates. And so as interest rates have been increasing, the yields in the portfolios have followed and they've been increasing the dividends as a result. And that sounds great. The problem the funds have is they haven't been able to get their discounts to the NAV under control. And there came a point last year where a number of the funds and the board number of funds decided to throw in the towel and to put the funds in to wind down. And we've seen that with the likes of Starwood European. We've seen that with MB monthly income fund. And now we've got the circular from BPC, Specialty Lending.
0: So uh, they might be going out of business just at the time when the things will be looking out for them. That's a kind of paradoxical. What sort of yields are you getting in the, in the sector now? And are they attractive compared to other types of uh, alternatives?
1: Yeah, I mean, at the portfolio levels, in a number of cases, yields are double-digit, firmly double-digit. So that's attractive. I suppose what we haven't seen yet is the credit cycle hasn't turned and we haven't started to see the defaults on the other side. So they're slightly in this sort of Goldilocks scenario where, you know, they're clipping higher coupons, but without seeing the defaults in the other side. And so that's something to be a little bit cognizant of when you're comparing it to other alternatives.
0: If we get a recession, that obviously could be bad news for some of these <laughs> trusts. Finally, then, how are you feeling about the various sectors that you follow, Matt, looking ahead? What are you looking out for over the next few weeks from the sectors you track?
1: Yeah, we're still very much focused on long-term government bond yields because that's going to drive discount rates across a lot of these assets. So just looking at my screen now, the UK 20-year, we're at 4.3%. As that creeps higher, that increases the chance of another leg up in discount rates, which would be a leg down in NAVs. So that's something to watch out for. And then as ever on renewables, we're looking at the power price environment and what the forward power price curve is going to look like at the end of Q2, because that will influence the next round of NAVs. And then with private equity, we're looking at listed indices and seeing what's going on there. So far, things look fine in the current quarter, but there's always potential for a sell-off and a change in sentiment.
0: Without naming names, do you think there are any uh, outstanding examples of mispricing, or is it simply the fact that the outlook from here is so uncertain as far as bond yields, inflation and so on are concerned, that it's actually very difficult to make judgments about most of these sectors at the moment?
1: It is, yeah. But it, I mean, the yeah, outlook is particularly murky as well. I mean, the key thing across any asset class is that interest rate riders doesn't appear they've peaked yet, and until that happens, things are going to be in flux. So, particularly six month view, it makes things opaque at best.
0: Well, of course. Therefore, I don't ever your job trying to pick our way through this complicated path, the uncertain path. But uh, very good. Thank you, Matt, for your thoughts this week.
1: Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust Podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.